morning. Good morning. Welcome to uh, Troy United Methodist Church. Special welcome to those of you who are newer or first-time guests today and, and dinner church. Uh, welcome again, uh, week four of a six-week stretch. It's great to see you. Uh, yeah, my name is Andy. Uh, this is not usually what I wear. Um, I, think, I think you know that. I, in fact, I heard a couple laughs. Good one. Uh, when I walked up, I'll, I'll explain uh, a little bit about this uh, later, uh, why I'm wearing an African shirt. But uh, I'm so glad that you're here as we begin uh, really this new message series that, that I, I believe will be uh, really spiritually meaningful, uh, deep and meaningful for uh, all of us as we uh, kind of... Uh, continue on in this uh, Lenten season leading up to Easter. We are uh, going to continue exploring some of the, the red letters of Jesus, if you know what I mean by that. Uh, a lot of our, our Bibles, uh, like what when Jesus speaks, the, the letter, the writing is in red. Um, and we were kind of doing that last series, and we'll be doing that in this series too. But but this series, uh, we're going to be looking at, at what I'm kind of dubbing the, the, the blood red letters. The, the, the words, the final words that Jesus uttered while hanging on a cross. Um, and as we prepare our hearts for, for the Easter celebration of the, the, the victory of Jesus over death and the grave uh, through the empty tomb, uh, I thought it would be meaningful for us to look at these, these uh, rich and, and quite honestly uh, deep theological uh, phrases uh, that, that Jesus spoke from his place of execution on that first uh, Good Friday. Uh, so over the next few, uh, four weeks, we're going to look at four of the seven uh, things that Jesus said from the cross. Um, but I, I don't want you to feel cheated. So I, I figured I'd at least share with you the three that we're not going to cover in the next uh, four weeks. Um, here are the things that we won't be covering. The, the first is, uh, was something that, that Jesus said to his mother, Mary, uh, as well as his disciple, John. Uh, Jesus was uh, doing his best to make sure that his mother was cared for now that, that he wouldn't be able to care for her in his household. So uh, Jesus said this. He said, uh, dear woman, uh, to his mother, here is your son, referring to the disciple John. And then he looked at his disciple John and he said, um, uh, here is your mother. Uh, so that, that's the first thing we won't be uh, covering that Jesus said from the cross. I, well, I guess I just covered it, but um, we won't be spending an entire week on that. Uh, soon afterwards, in his final moments, Jesus uttered uh, very human words uh, that uh, don't need a lot of interpretation. Quite honestly, he said, I am thirsty. Um, and, and then Jesus' very last words that he spoke before he died, as recorded in the book of Luke, uh, Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. Um, and with those words, he breathed his last. But between now and Easter, we'll be paying uh, special attention to the other four things that Jesus spoke from the cross. In fact, if you, you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open that to Matthew chapter 27, uh, or you can uh, simply follow along on the screen. I, I want to jump right into our passage for today. Uh, and we're going to begin, this will give you some background, some context to these uh, blood red letters that we look at today, starting in verse 35. After they had nailed Jesus to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus 
the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. In fact, we'll be talking more about these two and that interaction between, with, that they had with Jesus on Easter Sunday. But continuing on, the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their, their heads in mockery. Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, then, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross. The leading priests and teachers of religious law and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. So he is the king of Israel, is he? Let him come down from the cross right now, and then we will believe in him. He trusted God, so let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Well, you're getting a little bit of a picture of the humiliation here. Um, uh, but it's, it's my guess that even that little bit of a picture that we see is, is just the tip of the iceberg, not even, not even close to the reality of what was going on. I mean, they were mocking him. They were spitting on him. They were cursing him. And worse than anything else, they were, they were calling into question his, his faith, his, tr his trust in his heavenly father. I mean, you heard it, right? Well, where is your God now? If you're his son, why, why doesn't he save you? Come down off of the cross if you, if you can. Now, chances are, if, if you were looking at Jesus uh, hanging on the cross, if, if, if we were there, uh, we'd probably be wondering the same thing. He trusted in God, but where, where is his God now? And if you would have seen what had become of Jesus, uh, this, this holy man, uh, I think you would be asking uh, uh, some of the same things. And quite honestly, I think we'd all be very, very deeply disturbed. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen The Passion of the Christ. I remember the first time I saw it, I, um, I had to go to the movie theater by myself. Um, and, and then like behind me, there was a guy chomping on popcorn. And I'm like, this is not a popcorn movie, man. Uh, but, uh, uh, but just the, the, the vivid depiction of what Jesus endured, uh, really in those several 12 hours or so leading up to the cross, was, was brutal. And the Bible tells us uh, that they beat him so severely that, that he didn't even look like a human being anymore, that, that, that you wouldn't have been able to recognize him. I think about it, he, as was custom, his, his clothes were torn off of him. He was uh, scourged, whipped uh, 39 times. Um, that was the, the Roman practice, 39 times by a cat of nine tails whip. Uh, so a, a whip with, with, with like nine extra straps on the end with sharp objects tied into the end, rocks or uh, metal or, or glass. Um, and, and just, just li would literally rip into the body. And during these kinds of Roman scourgings, it wasn't uncommon for uh, people's internal organs to be exposed, if not just to pour out. Uh, people who would be scourged and then crucified, uh, many would never even make it to the crucifixion. They would die plenty ahead of time. Um, but that wasn't all they did. I mean, earlier they, they had covered Jesus' face, uh, his head, um, and, and repeatedly beat Jesus. I mean, cr crying out, prophesy, tell us which one of you, which one of us hit you. 
until his face was black and blue and bloody. And, and, and after the scourging, they, they then uh, made a, a crown of thorns. I mean, really, I, for no other purpose than to mock him. I mean, just to mock him. Um, put it on his head and then, then beat it. Beat it into his head so that even his face was covered in blood. And then, and then the, scriptures, the scriptures say, uh, this is just disturbing. Verse 31 says that when they were finally tired of mocking him, then they led him away to be crucified. And they beat him to a pulp until it wasn't fun for them anymore. And then the crucifixion itself, I mean, they, they, they laid Jesus on, on um, pieces of wood and drove, drove stakes into his flesh, into his wrists, into the arches of, of his feet. Um, so, so he was there, hanging on a cross, looking more like an animal, slaughtered, than, than a human being. And they were shouting at him, where is your God now? I, I want to ask if you've ever been there, um, but obviously none of us has ever endured that kind of physical abuse, that kind of physical pain. Uh, we wouldn't be here now if we had. Uh, but symbolically, have you been there? You know, where, where you felt like, God, I, I put my trust in you, but you're not showing up for me. Where, where, where are you, God? Where are you in the midst of this? And if you would have looked on Jesus in those moments on the cross, I think that we would have wondered uh, the same thing for him. And, and then we read these, these words and recognize that even Jesus felt the despair. Verse 45, at noon, darkness fell over the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemme sabachthoni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, these are our blood red letters for today. Heart-wrenching words uttered from the mouth of Jesus as he hung on the cross. Really, they're the only words that the uh, disciples, um, uh, Matthew, and then the, uh, the gospel writer, Mark, uh, kind of uh, covering for uh, recording for Peter, um, the, uh, the only words that they record Jesus speaking from the cross. Words that Jesus shouts in the greatest agony that, that he's ever experienced and words that many of us have cried out to God in one form or another when a loved one died or when um, uh, unspeakable tragedy struck or, or when we've reflected on a uh, past abuses done to us or those we love, or maybe after a miscarriage or the inability to get pregnant, or when, when your loneliness or your anxiety or your despair uh, seemed to, to just reach into the very depths of your soul and you felt like there was no way out, there was no escape. I, I know that you don't need me to tell you uh, how hard it is to, when you feel forsaken by God. I think we've all had our times. I can think of a, a couple of times in my life um, where I, I really felt abandoned by God. Um, you know, I knew in my, I, in my head, I knew better in my head, but, but the deepest feelings of my heart definitely betrayed anything that I could uh, try to tell 
tell it with my mind. And many of us have been there, and just the, the size of, of this group right now, uh, chances are some of us are there right now. But the question is, the, the question that I want to wrestle with and just encourage you with today, with its answers, are what do you do when you feel forsaken by God? And how, how do you respond? What, what's the action you should take? Um, and in the next few minutes, I, I'd like to just encourage you with a couple of things to remember, a couple of things to cling to whenever it is that you feel forsaken by God, when you don't know where God is, when you, when you feel abandoned and wonder why. Uh, when I reflect on this question, my mind uh, always immediately takes me back to Africa. Now you're getting the answer uh, <laughs> why it is I'm wearing this. This is really uh, more a reminder to me uh, than it is, uh, uh, you know, just a really cool shirt to wear. <laughs> Uh, but in January of 2009, I, I traveled to the West African nation of Liberia uh, uh, with, with some other uh, church folk from our broader uh, United Methodist Church. Uh, Liberia had been devastated with civil war. Uh, you may know this from, uh, for 14 years, from 1989 until 2003. And, and when we were there, I met uh, the Reverend Albert Barchu. Uh, Albert was the district superintendent of uh, some partner churches uh, that, that my church was, was partnering with. And so this is a picture of Albert and his wife, Eve. And um, uh, Albert and I have, you know, we had corresponded beforehand, and, and then we met in person, and we quickly became uh, good friends, uh, close friends. He's come and visited in the United States, uh, stayed at our home over Christmas. Uh, uh, just uh, you, you just don't see Christmas uh, from... Uh, your normal perspective when you have a guest from, uh, from a, a country that has far less uh, than we do. Uh, Life-changing experience for me, and I, I'm sure for Albert, too. Uh, but, but we've become close friends. But I will never forget the story that he told me in the, the very first week. It was the first week that he had been appointed as the superintendent of this district of churches, about 85 churches or so. And, and he wasn't expecting this appointment. Um, and he talked about, and he was sharing this story, not just with me, but with a handful of others. And he talked about how he walked among the, the war-ravaged churches in his district that were just broken down or destroyed uh, or burnt out so that only the, the, the foundations uh, remained. And in fact, this is a, a picture of, of one of those churches. Uh, you can kind of make out my bald head in the middle in the back. <laughs> that's, that's me. This is with the, the Wazon United Methodist Church in Albert's district. And, but, but Albert, he spoke about how demoralized uh, many of the people were, how they didn't have access to clean water. They had to travel uh, miles. The women would travel miles with big baskets and kids would, would travel up just to, to gather up water from dirty streams uh, to bring back to uh, their villages where they lived and how, uh, how they didn't have buildings to worship in. I mean, that was the, the one thing that kind of gave them solace and they didn't even have a place uh, to worship, uh, uh, which uh, was hard during the really hot and uh, really rainy seasons. How, how they, the people were scattered and just obviously devastated. Uh, I mean, an entire generation of boys and, and young men just weren't even there because of the war. 
uh, they, they were devastated and scattered as a people. And, and, and Albert said that as he was wandering, uh, visiting and just uh, visiting these churches for the first time, how he just broke down, fell on his knees, and just wept bitterly. Um, and just cried out, why, God? Why, why, why have you appointed me to this place that you have so obviously forsaken? This place and these people that you have abandoned. Where are you, God? I think of him often telling that story. But then, then, I, then I also think about something that, that Albert said with such frequency that it could just easily be lost on you. Uh, in fact, this, this is something that the, the Liberian United Methodists say all the time when they gather uh, together in, in worship. It's, it's a very common greeting. Every time they gather together, someone will say, uh, in, in a Liberian accent, of course, God is good. <laughs> God is good. Uh, maybe you've heard someone say that before um, in kind of a, a church setting. Uh, and, and it would be easy, I think, to say God is good if you were from the United States, you know, where despite the fact that we might complain about uh, high taxes or a really bad state uh, economy or, or the cost of college, uh, you know, we are just unbelievably blessed at least materially speaking. But despite all that Albert and his countrymen and country uh, women had experienced, they still constantly proclaimed, God is good. And not only that, but you, you, you know the response, right? When, when somebody says God is good, what do you say? All the time. And then uh, the, 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 the person would say, all the time, and then you'd say God is good. Uh, that's right. When, when, you don't, when you don't know where God is in the, in the midst of your struggles and you're wondering why you're feeling abandoned or forsaken, I just want to encourage you to cling to the truth that God is good. Psalm 107 captures the defining this defining characteristic of, of God's nature. When it says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. No matter what's, what it is that you're going through, no matter how forsaken you feel, cling to the truth that God is good. He's not just good when things are going well for you. He's not just good when, when you're feeling particularly blessed. God is not just good in the United States. He's not just good when he, when he feels like it on a whim. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. When you're feeling forsaken, hold, just hold on to that truth. Just grasp onto it with everything that you've got. That no matter how you might feel, that God is good in the midst of it. But there's uh, another thing that I, I would just hope that, that you would cling to and remember as you're wondering why. When you don't know where God is, also remember that God is with you. No matter how alone you might feel, how betrayed you, you may have been in a circumstance, God, God promises this. He promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You're not alone. And God is with you in your joys, and God is with you at the bottom of the pit that you don't know how in the world you're going to get out of. 
He's with you when you experience the joy of a relationship beginning. (laughs) And God is with you when the wheels are coming off and you don't know how it is that you're going to step into the next day. He's with you at the, at the, the birth of your children, and he's there when you say goodbye to your loved one for the very last time. He's with you in the highs and the lows and everything in between. God never promised that, that this life would be easy. In fact, in some places, Jesus actually said it's going to be the opposite of that. <laughs> um, but God did promise that he would be with you. That's the promise. Not that life would be taken care of, but that God would be with you in the midst of it. That he would never leave you nor forsake you. And, and knowing this, that, that God is good and, and that God is with you, then it begs the question, well, why then? Why did Jesus, of all people, cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he should know this more than any of us should. He should know. I mean, Jesus was God in the flesh. He had an intimate relationship with God the Father from the beginning of time. And so this is a great question. Why, why did he say these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, this is a, a deep theological question that, that truthfully people have wrestled with for, for ever since they've been spoken. Uh, ever since Jesus uttered these blood red letters. And, and to be fair, there, there are many opinions. Uh, well, one, one is that Jesus is simply quoting Psalm 22, which the very first words of Psalm 22 uh, from uh, King David in the Old Testament that he wrote was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and, and in Jesus' time, when, when you say the first line of a psalm, uh, for everybody there who is Jewish, they kind of, they understood the rest of it. And so, so Jesus was, was simply, you know, quoting that psalm, which, which he is, and he's probably drawing people into the entirety of that psalm. And if you read that psalm, you see there's stuff about people, uh, uh, you know, wagering for their clothes. And there, there are several things that, uh, from the crucifixion that you see in that psalm. Uh, so there's, there's at least that layer going on. But I think in light of the rest of the scriptures that there's more going on than Jesus just referring to a psalm. Um, and all that came with it. Um, I, I think it's important to note that, that while Jesus was being mocked and while he was being spit on and while he was being whipped, um, that, that Jesus never complained. He, he, he never cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me then? He, he didn't say it then. So, so what was happening in those moments in those last moments that caused him to, to cry out then. Uh, what happened when the darkness fell across the entire land and that, that led up to, to Jesus' final moments? Well, what happened that caused him to cry out these blood red letters at that time? And, and I, think, I think we can find the answer not, not just um, in, in this Matthew chapter 27 or 28 or right around there. I, I, think, I think we need to kind of see the scriptures as a whole and let scripture interpret scripture here. Um, not just Psalm 22, but, but something is, is said a little bit later and encouraged uh, the, the, the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul teaches this. He says, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, this is, this is thick. 
<laughs> one verse, but it's thick. For, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, despite the fact that Jesus knew no sin. Uh, I'll start with that part. You, you, see, w w when the darkness rolled in, and it said it came in about noon and lasted three hours until Jesus' final moments, uh, when, when darkness rolled in, it was almost as if God, the Father from heaven, could no longer look upon this horrific scene. God knew that uh, what was going to happen next. God knew that, that he was about to make Jesus into sin. God knew that he was about to take all the, the, the sin and brokenness of the world, yours, mine, people in the past, people on into the future, that God was going to ball it all up and, and place it on Jesus. Jesus, who knew no sin up to that point in his life. You see, scripturally speaking, uh, uh, sin separates us from God. Sin, sin keeps us from God's presence. Uh, sin prevents us from experiencing an intimate relationship with God. Uh, we can't experience the, the witness of God's spirit in our lives because God's spirit can't handle sin. Holiness and sin can't mix. So we can't experience God's presence uh, because of sin. And Jesus, though, he didn't have any sin. He lived a perfectly righteous life, had no sin at all, was in perfect relationship, experienced God's presence through and through and through. Uh, that is up until this moment. Until God the Father laid upon Jesus the sin of the world, Jesus had never experienced distance from his heavenly Father. And in that moment, sin separated Jesus from the rest of the Trinity, from uh, this intimate relationship with God. And in that moment, when Jesus received upon all, all, the, all the sin of the world, he became separated from God. And, and there, are, there are so many allusions to this, not just in 2 Corinthians, but, but all the way back into the Old Testament, where the people of Israel would symbolically, once a year, uh, like the high priest would lay his hands on a, on a sacrificial goat and proclaim and, and pray over the goat and like symbolically placing all the sin of Israel for that past year onto the goat. And then uh, there were actually two goats. One would be a scapegoat and would, would wander off and, and another goat was sacrificed. And, and, and so there's, there are illusions of all of those things going on in this moment when Jesus became that sacrificial lamb. And, and in that moment, when he for the very first time was separated from God the Father, that's when he cried out, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why? For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, when we receive the gift that Jesus offers us, the gift of his life as a ransom for ours, the goat instead of us, the gift of not receiving the punishment, but in fact, the punishment that Jesus took, then, then we can receive his righteousness and we can be made right with God. You see, Jesus had to be forsaken on the cross so that we don't have to be. So that despite our sin, which we got plenty, despite our sin, we can still be in the very presence of God, that we can experience God's presence in our lives because Jesus has already taken 
the, taken the punishment for that sin. So now we can actually be in intimate relationship with God, our Father. Despite our brokenness, despite our unholiness, God gives us the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus took our forsakenness. And because of that gift, God will never leave us nor forsake us. He, he, he will always be there with us. That's why he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you, knowing full well that we're going to still have sin in our lives, but Jesus has already taken the punishment for it. We will not be abandoned because of our sin. We will not be forsaken as long as we cling to Jesus. So when you feel abandoned, when you feel forsaken, I, I don't know what it is that you might be going through where, where you experience that. I just hope and I pray that you cling to the truth that God is good and, and that, that God is with you no matter what, that he promises to be with you as you cling to Jesus. Now, uh, I, I, I know that a lot of us, we just have really busy lives, really exhausting paces that we keep up with. And uh, rarely do we have moments of quiet where we can just experience God's very presence in our lives. Um, and so I, I just want to uh, leave us with, with some, some time of, of quiet before we close out our morning together. Um, so we're, we're just going to take a couple of minutes of really of quiet reflection. And I would just encourage you, as we're doing this, uh, don't, don't let your mind wander as best you can, but try to focus your mind and your heart on the cross where Jesus took our forsakenness so that we never have to experience being abandoned by God. Um, and maybe some of you want to just, uh, in your own heart, just cry out to God yourself and receive the gift of his grace. So let's, let's just tune our hearts to Christ.